Brian Stanton here with ASUP Frontline, again joined here at SMAC Dublin, wrapping up our final day here. I'm going to talk today with Dr. Darren Brody out of the University of New Mexico. I've actually talked to him. I talked to him the first day we were here, but at that point uh, there were some squatters here in the booth, and so we tried to record it out in the exhibit hall, and it, it got a little bit too NPR-ish for us with a lot of background noise, things going around. And you can still see, hear a fair amount of background noise with the booth here, so it's got a very natural ambiance, but uh, appreciate Dr. Brody taking a little bit of time, more time, um, out of his schedule to come talk with us. And um, we're going to talk about a couple of things, one being we're going to dump that sea uh, collar and then the rapid sequence airway. So Dr. Brody, give us a little um, low case lowdown here on your background, where you are, and how you got interested in these topics. Well, I, uh, as you said, I'm at the University of New Mexico, been there for about uh, 15, 16 years, come from a long EMS background and continue to spend a lot of my professional career on, uh, in EMS and uh, my secondary interest is airway and certainly how it overlaps with EMS. As an EMS person myself, uh, medical director, I've, I've been ex- always I've been really excited the last few years that we're finally moving forward. Um, we've had years and years of evidence that shows the backboards and the sea collars being something that's not necessarily of benefit and can be of harm. So I've been really excited over the last few years that we've been able to dump the backboard in most cases, with the exception of a extrication tool rather than a transport and uh, maintenance tool for these patients. But now it seems like we may be making headway on the sea collar itself. So. Tell me wh- where you are with this, uh, with the talk with the sea collar, and when can we expect some changes in practice on the front line of medicine in the United States? Well, first of all, I think it is important to, you know, understand that our our first priority for for so many years has been uh, getting rid of backboards, um, at least as a transport device or some kind of you know mystical. Um, splinting device, then they're an extrication device. And so um, there's still plenty of places in the United States that are using backboards uh, routinely and transporting patients on them and patients are being left on them way too long. So I think first and foremost, we've just got to get everybody on board with the ASEP guidelines, with um, all the position papers that are out there and, and start limiting the use of backboards to just getting people out of tight places when we need to and then getting them off as soon as possible. But what's really cutting edge and exciting is to realize that there are people that are now moving this from just getting rid of backboards to actually getting rid of cervical collars, the hard cervical collar. And that may really push some people over the edge. But we have colleagues um, Scandinavia and colleagues in Australia that are doing this in practice right now. And the, the idea is that um, these collars really have never been shown to have the benefit that we thought they would have, um, that this prevention of movement isn't really as much as there as we thought, but even more so, movement isn't really the problem. It's, it's energy deposition. So um, that's offset by the fact that collars can cause, um, uh, can increase intracranial pressure, they can cause some distraction of the spine itself. They affect airway management. Um, so, I mean, what's amazing 
um, is that um, some of our advanced colleagues in parts of the world, especially down under, have gone back to the soft cervical collar, the one that we made fun of for so long for doing absolutely nothing. The um, only, not because they think it does anything other than it tells somebody, oh, this is a trauma patient that you know you have to pay attention to their spine. But having a patient move within their own range of motion really is unlikely to be a source of secondary injury. When you think about the amount of force and energy that was necessary to cause a spine or neck injury, the likelihood, other than your buggy ending up in a motor vehicle collision itself, of you inflicting that amount of force or destabilizing an injury, uh, I don't know that a a seat collar and backboard are going to make that much of a difference. And then, you know, we mentioned when we talked a couple of days ago, I guess yesterday now, um, that when I started off in an internship in surgery, we had folks that would stay. This is the era of the four-slice scanner, I think. When we were there, we got an eight-slice scanner, and we thought we were the cat's meow at that point. And we were living on in the Jetsons era. But we would have the patient staying on, in, on the backboard in the seat collar the entire time, and we would have elderly patients, the elderly fall patients, that would come in. And by the time we got them admitted to the hospital, many of them would have a stage one decubitus ulcer on the sacrum secondary to being on that backboard. And if you didn't have back pain from the trauma that you were in or neck pain, within a couple of hours, everyone had back pain and neck pain. So then we're going back and doing more evaluations because differentiating between what was actually traumatic in origin and atrogenic from our work in origin um, is huge. So it sounds like what we're saying is if you're out there in the United States, especially that if you're an EMS director and you still have your folks putting everybody on a backboard. We need to move past that. Um, The American College of Surgeons, American College of Emergency Physicians, everybody is past that, um, and both of which have statements to that. And then I think the next step, it sounds like um, we're working towards that limited C-collar um, seat collar usage. Who, Who are we still going to be using it on, and then how far out are we from everybody being on the same page, on the same page from the EMS trauma and, e- and ER standpoint. Well, I hope this moves faster than things moved for the backboards. I started working on the backboard issue um, in the early 1990s, and it took you know basically took 20 years of my career to see this um, happen. And I think there's so much attention on this and so much international focus that I think things will move faster on the cervical collars. Um, we had a good, healthy debate on this topic here at Smacked Up yesterday, and there's absolutely, you know, people that are are you know very you know smart people that are not convinced yet, and and I think that that's reasonable. I think uh, people, you know, want to see the evidence. We need our colleagues that have st- started this practice of limited uh, cervical collar use to publish on that and get that experience out there. And we need um, societies and position papers to, to come along. And I, and I get that. Um, but I do think um, in the meantime, we need to um, recognize that um, we, we may well be causing harm to these patients in the meantime. And we may look back on this, and I suspect we will, like so many things in medicine as, you know, why were we doing that? Well, it's one of those things that we can't prove that we're killing people with it. So it's 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 kind of like the steroids in so many uses for spine and, and ICP and things like that. With it's not doing any direct harm that we can measure at this point. So we're kind of afraid to to get rid of it. It's hard to let go of that. All those old trinkets. We're all wall hoarders, even in medicine, when it comes to our treatments. Now, the other topic you talked about here was the 
rapid sequence airway. Don't DSI than the rapid sequence airway. Give me, give me some background on that because I think a lot of us are thinking about RSI in terms of rapid sequence intubation, but rapid sequence airway from our conversation sounds like more we're moving to that, getting the airway that is right for that patient's needs. Right. I mean, there's so many options in airway management now as we get more and more sophisticated. Uh, it's, you know, just the most basic of RSI is, you know, has really evolved and the RSA concept is yet one more variation, one more uh, of our infamous acronyms in, in medicine. But this is an approach that we started developing uh, probably around 2005 in New Mexico, initially for pre-hospital use, although it has some limited application as well in the emergency department for the critically hypoxemic patient as well. But basically what we're doing is taking the pharmacology and preparation of rapid sequence intubation with the and combining that with the immediate plan placement of an extraglottic device. Not an extraglottic device being used as a backup in the event of missed failed intubation. This is by intention. And this is what I describe constantly as the, the enemy of good is better. Um, we have patients who, in the interest of trying to prevent an aspiration episode with a cuffed endotracheal tube, an aspiration episode that may have already occurred or may never occur, um, we, we cause harm or we overlook other options. These extraglottic devices now provide more aspiration protection than people realize. They can provide their conduits for suctioning, their conduits for intubation, and they go in very quickly and easily. And so um, this is something we've been doing in the pre-hospital setting, um, not as our primary technique in most cases, um, usually as an option um, for when we're in the aircraft, when we need to get off scene quickly, when we have a hypoxemic patient, when we have reason to think that intubation is going to be difficult, but extraglottic ventilation will not be. This is a, you know, has turned out to be a great option. And it's one that I also use in the emergency department. I like DSI. I think it's a fantastic. But if I have a patient who's critically hypoxemic, and I don't, for some reason, think they're a good DSI candidate. They're, you know, they're, just as a quick example, they've got a bunch of facial hair, and I don't think I'm going to be able to fit a CPAP, BiPAP mask on them. Then this is a this is a great approach um, to just give the meds, get this device in there, get them on a ventilator, get the peep going, get their oxygen up, and then we have techniques to intubate patients endoscopically through these devices while continuing ventilation the entire time. Um, and so I think that as we, again, um, as we look ahead and then we imagine where we're going to be in 10 years looking back, this idea of one size fits all, you know, RSI for everybody um, that needs airway management is going to seem, you know, overly simplistic. Well, I mean, I think any good mechanic's got more than one screwdriver and more than one socket size. Not everything's a half inch. So, you know, making sure that we understand as emergency physicians that each person, we should evaluate each person based on their needs, their risk factors, and not necessarily that one size band-aid for every single patient. Of course, when I was training, emergency physicians were seen as if you didn't get that, quote, definitive, uh, end quote, airway, then you were a failure. So people would come in with a combi tube, the LMA, or whatever, whatever it may be, 
And the first thing we did without interruption, no matter really what the patient needed, was work on getting that definitive airway, that that, uh, uh, endotracheal tube, cuff tube um, in place, because then we had a secured airway. It sounds like we're moving away from that. We need to move away from um, some of those terms and some of those thoughts in emergency medicine. Absolutely. And, you know, I look back on a lot of things that I did over the years that I thought were great for patients. And I, um, and I cringe a little bit when I look back. Um, and I think focusing on getting tubes in patients at whatever the cost um, and now we have so much information about the risks of hypoxemia, for example, in you know many of our patient populations, and um, and that just kind of got ignored. Uh, and so I think that this is you know just one example of how we can be you know more sophisticated, and we can look at our individual patients and our techniques and what that patient is at risk for, and how we can mitigate those risks. And hopefully, you know, in the future, where this is all going to be outcome based, and we're going to be able to really figure out what's best for that patient. But I just don't want to focus on one device, one technique, um, one technology. Um, and just you don't want to be a one trick pony. Absolutely. Dr. Brody, I really appreciate your time. Um, I'm, I'm pretty excited that I didn't list you in the wrong state like I did yesterday. Um, so I'm not from Arizona, Dr. Brody from uh, New Mexico. How can folks get in touch with you, contact, uh, if they have further questions? Um, Always happy to talk airway. Always happy to talk EMS. Uh, Email is uh, dbrody, first first initial, last name, all one word. D as in dog, B as in boy, R-A-U-D-E, at salud. That's health in Spanish, S as in Sam, A-L-U-D, dot U-N-M, as in University of New Mexico, dot E-D-U. And since I'm at SMAC, I have joined the Twitter sphere, and I am at Darren Brody. All right. Get in touch with him. Uh, wonderful guy. I'm uh, excited that I got to talk, to talk to him twice. It's just like any good lecture. Um, once you hear it the second time, you actually uh, know some stuff to listen for and, and to, to strengthen your thoughts. So um, appreciate your time once again. And I'm Ryan Stanton at Everyday Med on Twitter and yourEverydayMedicine at gmail.com. I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton, and this has been some ASAP Frontline. Frontline.